Grace and peace to everyone. It's great to be with you all. And uh, as Don mentioned, happy National Coming Out Day uh, to all of our LGBTQ folks um, who call the table home. Um, I know that is, uh, I mean, I can't even imagine that just the battle that is to um, take that step and um, to come out just takes so much courage and um, just that acknowledgement, especially in, you know, religious circles, often it's it's just that much harder as we talked about last week. And so um, you just, I just want you to know we love you so much and uh, we are enriched by your presence. We're better for it. So thank you for um, being among us. It's wonderful. So we are in um, part three of our series titled Scripture, uh, dealing with difficult texts. And two weeks ago, we discussed really how to kind of... Um, think about and approach scripture kind of as a whole. And in that message, I contended that the primary point of scripture is to point us to Jesus, right? It does not point to itself. It, scripture doesn't say, look at me, look at me, everyone. I'm, I'm, I'm the best. I'm, I'm ultimate. I am God. Believe on me and you shall be saved. Uh, no, the Bible points away from itself towards Christ. Uh, and uh, and kind of what we named was that, at the very least, that's that's really how the early church fathers and uh, mothers read the Bible and in interacted with it. Um, which meant, you know, sometimes when they came across something that did not seem uh, in line with the nature and character of Christ, uh, then they often read that passage metaphorically, um, or they would even just reinterpret it until it lined up with the love of Christ. And um, and sometimes they were quite creative about this. We I mentioned one example um, that I'll just touch on again for those who missed it. Um, so St. Augustine was a, you know, or just an amazing theologian and uh, a great mind in, in the faith. And this is how he engaged with scripture. And so, um, you know, when he came across the passage about Jesus clearing out the temple um, with whips, uh, Augustine said like, oh, come on, Jesus would never do that. What, what this passage is, is teaching us that, okay, this is about the way that Christ drives the evil from our hearts. So he gave it a metaphorical or figurative reading of that story. Um, now, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, like I don't think that's actually a text we need to read in that way. Um, but no matter, the point is um, that you know the, the purpose of the Bible is to lead us to Christ and then to really to fashion us, to, to mold us, to shape us into his character, image, and love. So um, that was week one. And then last week, uh, we took this approach to the Bible and basically applied it to texts that are commonly known as um, the clobber passages. If I'd had more foresight, I would have swapped messages and done that last week's message this week. And then, all right, But anyway, uh, so last week we looked at the, the clobber, they're known as the clobber passages. Um, and they're, they're normally the passages in the Bible read as applying to people in the LGBTQ community. Uh, and so if you're interested in that topic, kind of how I approached it, um, you can go back to um, last week on the podcast and, and listen to, to that message. Uh, but tonight, we're going to shift our focus to text speaking about women. Uh, so with that in mind, the title of my message is The Puzzling History of the Bible and Women. So um, let me kind of frame things up like this. For the last uh, probably 17 years, 16, 17 years, um, I have been what is called a Christian um, egalitarian. Uh, so let me give you, I'm going to give you a few definitions on this. So this is um, Christian egalitarianism. It, it holds to the equality of men and women and places no gender-based restrictions on what roles they can hold in the family or the church. 
Now, this is in contrast to what's known as Christian complementarianism. I know these are some big words. Uh, and complementarianism holds to the equality of men and women in their personhood while believing they have separate but equal roles in the family, society, and the church. Uh, so, for example, uh, a complementarian church would, would, would have some restrictions on women, right? They would say, okay, um, you could, um, if you're a woman, like you could teach, you know, um, children about the Bible, but as far as, you know, a woman preaching a sermon, um, you know, kind of like I'm doing now, or, you know, going on staff as like a pastor, eh, that'd be a no-go. Um, and now to, to be fair, they wouldn't say that's because they believe, you know, women are lesser than, um, but the argument would go, they, it's, it's simply that men and women have different roles, you know, God-given roles, there are different parts to play. Um, and of course, this becomes kind of contested because leadership and authority is, is at, at least um, partly how we honor and kind of communicate trust to people. So, you know, if you say these two groups are equal, but only one group can lead, <laughs> then, you know, it kind of begs the question, like, uh, are you, is it really that equal? But all right, no matter. So, um, so as I mentioned, for the last 17 years or so, I've been an egalitarian, which means you know, I've been reading scripture with my metaphorically speaking egalitarian glasses on, which of course influences me quite powerfully um, in terms of how I read the text, you know, what I notice or pay close attention to versus the passages I just sort of scan over quickly um, because they, you know, are in tension with my egalitarian reading. Uh, and and I, not that I didn't know these texts like we're in the Bible or something, um, but just simply that, you know, once you have a certain viewpoint and a certain theological outlook, it's just human that confirmation bias kind of kicks in. And so any Bible verses that align with your view, it's like they jump off the page, you know, and you maybe have this experience with other things, you know, when you, what you're kind of looking for, you see, <laughs> lo and behold. Uh, and so that was kind of my experience. While anything that kind of pushes back on your view, you know, if that sort of fades into the background, um, but this all changed um, kind of recently. Um, one day I was leading a couple through premarital counseling about a year and a half ago, and there was a page of the curriculum that was devoted to quotation after quotation of the types of passages that a good complementarian um, would, would use to kind of defend their position. And I knew the purpose um, was to kind of get this happy couple talking about their own theological views. Um, the church I worked at previously um, was, in fact, it was an egalitarian church, uh, but they knew you need to get couples, you know, talking about their theology and talking about this stuff before they get married, hopefully, <laughs> preferably, so that, you know, they can flesh that out and have those conversations. So, um, but but this page, what happened is I basically began to read these out loud because we were going to discuss them in this premarital counseling session. And, <laughs> you know, as I read, um, I just, I mean, just... Full disclosure, I just started to feel a little bit queasy, very nervous, um, because there was something about having them all kind of condensed like in one page. You know, it's something different about when you kind of interact with them in scripture kind of sporadically, but all condensed in one page. It just sort of it sucker punched me, <laughs> theological sucker punch. And then added to this was the fact that I knew these folks I was counseling with, this, this couple, um, you know, they were pretty new Christians. And they, they had, I think almost certainly had not read, you know, through the Bible or had no idea these kinds of texts were in there. And so they just weren't prepared. And I kind of knew this. 
And so I was, oh, what a moment. So um, for example, I want to give you a few of the passages. It was these types of passages. I honestly can't remember exactly which ones it was, um, but it was these, these types. Um, and so like, for example, let's see, 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9 says, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Um, all right, another one. This is, I don't know if it's, maybe it's better that I'm not in person with you all. I'm just, I would be just curious as a cat about the looks on people's faces during these. All right, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Uh, here's another text from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit, permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Uh, finally, Ephesians 5.20. Can you see why I was getting a little, something about having them all just boom, 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 boom. It's kind of overcooking my grits. Um, Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Uh, so as I read these, you know, I'm, I'm counseling. Um, well, specifically, I remember looking at the man I was counseling with, and he just is sort of looking at me like, is this a trap? Or what, what am I supposed, <laughs> what do I do with this? Like, I mean, you're a pastor, so presumably you adore these texts, but then, but at my wife is, or my, you know, fiance is sitting here, uh, 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 I mean, it was so oh gosh. And then the, the, uh, the sweet lady, she's looking at me, kind of half puzzled, half angry kind of look on her face. And so I did go on to point out, at least for this last passage, this Ephesians 5, um, we just read verse 22. I did point out verse 21, the previous verse, of course, says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That kind of frames it. And so I kind of explained in my own marriage, I have found it's very helpful to practice um, what is known as mutual submission, and they both kind of nod their heads in slight relief as they mumbled, oh, yeah, 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 okay, uh, mutual, mutual submission, that, that sounds good, that seems that seems best. Um, and then I made a mental note, I needed to um, talk to the team about updating the premarital counseling materials. Um, like I said, this is at a previous church, this is not the same materials we use. Okay, so, um, now, now, what were they, I'm not trying to, uh, I mean, you know, if you've been with me in this series, I'm not trying to, like, mock the Bible or, you know, poke fun at it or, or whatever. Um, but I am trying to, I mean, it's the series, right? Dealing with difficult texts. And I think if you read those, um, or if you followed along with me, it's, yeah, they were kind of awkward. Um, so what were this, this couple, what was I, perhaps you, as you, you know, listen to me just now, um, you know, what are you reacting to? Um, and I think it's the fact that when you simply read them back to back to back, um, you get the distinct feeling that, um, you know, they're just kind of, there's a sexist kind of 
tinge to them. Maybe that's putting it nicely. Um, it's almost as though the writer is kind of trying to, you know, kind of rein the women in to, to kind of um, maybe bridle them to, to kind of keep them in their place a little bit. Um, and, uh, and of course that begs the question, like why would they be trying to do that? Uh, now, one of the best kept secrets of the early church is the central role that not only women as a whole, but specifically women leaders, that's right, women leaders, um, women not at all keeping quiet, women definitely exercising authority over others, including men. Um, but one of the best kept secrets is the enormous part they played in the rise of early Christianity. Uh, women were absolutely essential to the spread of the good news of Jesus. There is evidence for this um, not just you know outside the Bible, but in both in the New Testament um, and in historical documents um, we have from the second century and on. Um, so I want to walk you through through some of this. This would be kind of the the other track. Um, so at some level, this kind of begins with Jesus himself, who, uh, while of course the twelve disciples were all males, he did have um, a number of other basically women disciples. Um, who traveled with him and um, even helped kind of fund the, the ministry. And, um, and as we'll see in just a second, women really were the first preachers of um, the resurrection of Christ. So this is um, Luke 24. If you were with us for a previous series on the Gospel of Luke, you'll probably recognize it. Um, this is 24 verses 9 through 11. Uh, it says, When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. So who is this they? It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles, right? So this is the, the women telling the men. Um, but then the men said, but it says, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. They just couldn't believe like resurrection, like what? Um, so basically here you have women disciples, you know, who followed Jesus and they became the first people to, to um, testify about the resurrection. Uh, but really things got going with the apostle Paul, uh, who seemed to intuit that the resurrection of Jesus had, had really ushered in um, something he called new creation. It was the idea of the inbreaking of heaven to earth. And, and, and so whatever kind of messed upness, um, relational um, fracturing, whatever had been broken or fractured between people, um, whatever enmity or strife had arisen previously between people. Um, he, and he's thinking, of course, um, here uh, of the curse of Genesis 3, if you recall the, the story, you know, after everything went down with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where God said, um, you know, do not eat from this tree. He told that to Adam and Eve, but then Eve ate, and then she gave some to Adam, and then he ate, and then God's like, no, and then he, God curses the man and says, okay, you'll now have to toil hard for your food. And then to the woman, he says, now childbearing will be painful, and you'll be subject to your husband, and he will rule over you. So that's Genesis 3. Um, and in which, by the way, notice in the passages read earlier that there, the writer is looking back to that story. Um, but Paul's insight was that the resurrection of Jesus, hallelujah and amen, has undone all of that. And so his idea seems to be that Christian families and churches um, were to be walking, talking, living, breathing examples of of new creation, of 
of a new day, a new way of relating of, of heaven touching earth, um, which is why in Galatians chapter three, Paul wrote um, insane passages, at least passages that would have sounded insane to the broader Greco-Roman world in which he and his hearers were living, uh, passages like this. So in Christ Jesus, you were all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying? Well, he's he's taking groups of people who are different and divided in different spheres, and, and he's saying, look, the old days are over. So he looks at, for example, the religious sphere, Jew and then non-Jew or known as Gentile, um, he looks at the economic sphere. Back then it was slave and free. Uh, and finally, he looks at the sphere of gender, male, female. And he says, uh, there is now a, a, a oneness, a, a unity and equality in Christ Jesus. Uh, and there are honestly echoes of this all throughout the New Testament. Um, from, for example, Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit of God falls upon uh, not just the men, but on everyone. Young, old, rich, poor, male, female, they are all filled with God's Spirit, and they all begin to go into the streets and prophesy and speak God's Word. Um, to Acts 18 verse 26, which says that a husband-wife pair named Priscilla and Aquila, uh, and notice there that actually the woman was named first, um, where basically they took uh, took a man named Apollos aside and they taught him about Jesus. So here you have in Acts 18, 26, a woman um, with her husband teaching a man. Uh, and then you have also kind of numerous um, closing credits of Paul's letters. If you've ever um, read one of Paul's letters, then it's, this is probably the part you skip because um, at the very end, and it's the, the part where basically he's just thanking a lot of people. And he's like, hey, you know, this person and that person, they helped me and so-and-so hosted a church at their home and so-and-so were elders and leaders in that community. Just thank you, thank you. I'm so grateful. Um, some of you know what I'm talking about. And uh, of course, you know, it's very easy to skip through that. But if you read them and pay attention, uh, the list is not, thank you, Bill, Harold, Jim, Bob, and Chris. Um, instead, it's really interesting to note um, all the women he mentions. Here's This is a great example. Uh, from Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Uh, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in uh, Sincrea. Uh, now, a deacon was someone who basically helped uh, the leaders of the church execute on the vision um, uh, in the community. Uh, but he keeps going. Skipping down, this is verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. So here it sounds like we have um, Priscilla as, as almost a co-apostle over churches, or at the very least, um, this is you know a husband-wife pair who are basically elder leaders together over the church that meets in their 
house. And um, as many of you know, in, in church communities, elders, that tends to be kind of the highest leadership team in any church. Um, you also have to see, this is verse six. Uh, greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Uh, then go down to verse seven. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. So um, if you know your Greek, then you know that Junia is a woman's name. And apparently she was an outstanding apostle. And an apostle is someone who, um, who oversees the leaders of a church. They're like the leaders of the leaders. So Junia certainly said words in church and definitely told men what they needed to do. <laughs> She was, she's basically the peer of the Apostle Paul. And in fact, in ways, it seems like he's kind of, you know, looking up to them. Uh, so, all right. Then you add to this, that that's all kind of New Testament evidence. Um, add to that the work of sociologists like um, Rodney Stark and the historian Tom Holland. And what you see in the decades following Paul Um and, and really even the first few hundred years of Christianity is basically that women absolutely flocked to the early church. In fact, by our best estimates, um, churches were basically two thirds women. Uh, now this kind of begs the question of why. Um, so if you're a note taker, you can jot some of these down. Um, so first churches offered women real opportunities for engagement and even leadership. Uh, and the leadership pieces, some of those texts that we saw earlier. Um, Christianity also promoted sexual purity among both sexes. So in much of the ancient world, uh, the idea was basically that, that women were held to very, very strict standards, um, women in, specifically in a marriage, um, while the men were kind of free to do as they want, um, like sexually speaking. Um, and that was true in much of the Greco-Roman world. So all of a sudden you have this you know, new Jesus movement and women and men are um, being held to a high standard of you know, marital faithfulness. Um, and so that was very appealing um, to women. Um, also Christians had very high standards for divorce. Uh, again, in much of the ancient world, men swapped out their wives very easily, um, often leaving um, women destitute, because back in the Greco-Roman world, it, you didn't just like go down the street and get a job. Um, if you were a woman, that, that wasn't really a thing. So um, once, you know, their husband kind of swapped them out, well, then all of a sudden um, they're, you know, really struggling. So they they flocked to Christianity because it had these high standards, again, for men of saying like, hey, no, we're not just divorcing on a whim. <laughs> like we're committed to each other. We're going to do our best to work this out. Um, so it was very high standards. Um, for divorce. And then finally, um, Christians condemned infanticide. So this was um, very popular in the ancient world. Um, it was basically leaving a baby outside in the elements to die of exposure. And this was often done to female um, babies because financially, boys um, were going to grow up and be more lucrative financially lucrative and to, to be able to support their parents in their old age. Because back in that day, right, kids were basically your retirement. Um, and so uh, this is also a factor as to why um, within just a few centuries, churches had a lot of young girls and women um, because they, they didn't practice infanticide. And um, so 
All right, so you kind of have these these two different histories. So perhaps you're, I don't know what you're experiencing right now, maybe a little bit of like intellectual whiplash as you wonder like, okay, so wait, what? <laughs> so, so why why those those passages you opened with, Brett? Like what what's going on with the Bible? Um, that's a good question. And one theory is that um, it was really kind of Paul, the Apostle Paul, who discerned the social implications of the good news of Jesus and specifically what it meant for women. And so it was kind of he who was pushing for this among early churches. Um, but perhaps, you know, uh, or not perhaps, for sure, not everyone agreed with Paul. And they were quite nervous about this new development of gender equality. Um, so perhaps that's kind of what's happening. Perhaps these passages are really just focused on specific churches with specific problems or something, um, you know, but ultimately I'll kind of leave that um, for the Bible scholars to, you know, sort out. Um, but what we have to grapple with as really as, you know, Christians um, is that when it comes to women and leadership in the church, you have, um, in the New Testament, you have two different trajectories, um, both of which someone could argue and say like, you know, th this is biblical. This is one of the problems with um, people often tack that word, you know, biblical onto a phrase, you know, biblical marriage. Um, well, like what is biblical marriage? You could, I mean, there's a lot of um, polygamy in the Old Testament, you know, so is that biblical? Um, and it's kind of the same here, right? Biblical womanhood, um, as Rachel Held Evans in her wonderful book talks about. Um, you know, what, what is biblical womanhood, bib the biblical stance of women in leadership? Right. And as we've seen, it's not at all that clear. So you kind of have these, you know, two different trajectories. Uh, and so probably won't surprise you to hear me say uh, that I think our choice of which trajectory to follow is super, super clear. Um, I just I believe it's beyond time for Christians to really um, reclaim this egalitarian history and this theological vision of equality in how the different genders relate to one another in, in the family, in the church, in society. And I, I just, I long for us to be a community that celebrates and elevates women. Uh, I want us to be a church who communicates to our little girls that they can be fully themselves and, and certainly leaders too, uh, that they get to use um, their voices and be heard too. That they like this is our name, right? The table. They have a place at the table. Uh, why? Because in Christ we are all one. We are all equal. We are all children of God. Well, let me go ahead and pray for you, Lord Jesus. Um, I I ask that as a community. Um, we would live into this and uh, where women have been oppressed and pushed to the edges and um, kind of muffled, ignored. God, I pray that we would um, start to change that, that by your grace, by your spirit, you would lead us into a new day and help us to really love one another um, help us to elevate women. And God, wherever there's hurt, I, I'm, I just know there's um, some, 
ladies who are listening who have experienced a lot of hurt around the church in them and their own hearts and minds and they um they just haven't felt really valued and i um i pray god that you would bring healing to them and that their experience in this church community um while it's it's probably not going to be perfect and flawless god but it would be better it would be life-giving um healing for them god may it be a new day and i pray that um not only over our church community, but every church, God, in our area, um, in this, in this um, country, in our world, God, that, that the, um, there would be a profound shift and that women um, would be set free to use their gifts and um, voices and, and just who they are. God would be unleashed, and I know we're all going to be better for it. So we love you, Lord. We love one another. Help us to be faithful, to live into this egalitarian vision. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.